Yo! Yo! What's yo. going on, everybody? How are you? We are back for another episode of Crime Documentaries. <laughs> that was good. I like right? that. Come that on, you good. didn't think I was ready. I was ready. You don't yeah. even know. Well, we we were on a meeting earlier today. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, it's like um, you looked like you were going to pass out. I still feel like I'm going to pass out. Do you? I'm ready to go lay down, relax, you know, but we, you know, we have another show to do. So, yeah. You know what I was thinking about is maybe we should make this, I was like, make it into like seasons, like yeah. do a couple of more episodes and then make that, make, make it to maybe two, maybe two more episodes. 13. Well, that's what I normally do on 12. the RSS site. Yeah, so I'll do 12, 12 yeah. episodes, and then we shut it down for a couple of weeks and take a break and because we've been doing this 10 weeks in a row. Yeah. Which is pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Usually I take a break or two. Yeah, right? Yeah. So I've started to uh, – I was starting to think about that earlier today. Maybe we should make it into, like, season one season two season three yeah you know we should cover certain topics on season each season so yeah. we're getting now i i wanted to mention this last week but i never got a chance i want to let people know unfortunately with Streamyard, and i'm gonna see who these comments are um okay uh aj chris and see this is what it's coming up for us folks um and that's and that's uh let me put this on mute um because there's people in uh there's people in uh the huntophobia and this is bill awesome and, hey bill uh yeah that bill oh no this is bill oh that the before what? that that was chris so there's anna that's anna so right. unfortunately, with um, for some reason, when we stream it to Huntophobia, we don't get to see. We see the comments, but we don't see who the person is, and I don't know oh. why that's happening. Uh, unfortunately, there are platforms we're on right now. Uh, Chris is that that was Chris uh, that left that comment. I don't know. I don't know. It's something to do with the Huntophobia page. I don't know why, but. Unfortunately, unfortunately, with some of the pl places that we go live on, you can't see the comments. Uh, for example, LinkedIn. We're on LinkedIn right now. We don't get to see the comments on LinkedIn. And I don't know why. And when it comes to Huntophobia, uh, it comes out as a Facebook user. Now, when we're in Parapost, it's fine. So if it's in Parapost and we're seeing the names in Parapost, why can't we see the names in Huntophobia. Yeah. And even on my page, because I put it on my personal profile page and your personal profile page as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, but we're not Why seeing the comments. From, we're not seeing the personal comments from the or the comments from the personal Facebook pages. Now, uh, what's what's even more interesting when I set up the stream and it and uh I I put it active or however you want to say it. Mm -hmm. Um for some reason, on your personal page and my personal page, it doesn't come up. 
the show doesn't come up. Wow. Until we actually go live. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. So I'm wondering if it's me having to reconnect. Mm. But it is going live once we do go live. Yeah, it's no, actually... it should be fine. Yeah. Thank you, Thank you guys much. so much for sharing that's, out. That's, uh, that's Valerie. Thank you so Thank much, you, Valerie. Valerie. Appreciate that. Appreciate um, that. So I don't know why. Yeah, see, Anna's saying the same thing. It happens to her. Yeah. And then uh, I don't know who put that up. Yeah, none of the no notifications have been showing up from either show today. So from your talking with the source and, yeah, that was Chris again, uh, Chris wow. Bender. So I don't yeah. It's weird. It's weird. Something's going on with StreamYard because every time we get into like a meeting or something like that, it's well, they're running. A, they're running a beta thing right now for a lot of things because like there's a lot of beta stuff going on. So it could be that. So that's what could be going on with it. But yeah. it's not real. So just to let everybody know, it's not because we're ignoring you. It's because we're not seeing your messages. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, but then the message from Facebook user are always from the Huntophobia page. Now I don't now I don't know if you've ever taken a look at the Huntophobia page when it comes to our show. Yeah. But the numbers are extremely good on the Huntophobia page. Yeah. They're very, very good on the Huntophobia page. So which is awesome. StreamYard is StreamYard is ignoring us, Chris. Chris Ben. Well, listen, we let's get into this guy because this guy is serious and let's talk about he talked he killed nine people. Eight people. Okay. Eight, eight people? people? I'm sorry. Yeah. Eight people, no, that's whatever. Okay. Yeah. But, well, no, you know it's not what? whatever. It's important. <laughs> no, no. Well, it's important, but he probably could have got nine. Let's put it that way. Well, okay. Well, let me say this then. There, uh, There is suspicion that he killed more than eight people. They figured he might be, he might have been killing since he was a teenager. Oh, wow. So there's actually a possibility. And he was born in 1951. Wow. So they there's actually something came out after he was arrested that possibly something happened when he was 15, 16 years old. That somebody died in his life and they were suspecting that he killed that person as well. So there is a really, really good possible chance that this guy's killed more than eight people. Like, I don't think he would start at the age of... No. Your mid sixties, no, of killing people, no, just doesn't make any sense. Now no, he definitely was a lifelong, definitely person. Yeah. Unless he snapped one day. I mean, that does happen. Well, I will say that, and I don't know if it's in this uh, documentary. I I watched the, I know a lot about this story, but there's still questions that are unanswered from this story. So I don't know if it's in this video. Uh, they're they're. Uh, he grew up in a time where, unfortunately, what is that? What the hell happened, Chris? Yeah, spamming. Chris got hacked. No, it's spamming. Somebody's spamming in the in the oh, um, Facebook user. Yeah, you're in, right. Um, uh, in the Huntophobia page. You could block it. Can you block it at your end? No, they won't let me. <sighs> no, you have to block it block. on the stream yard. No, I just blocked him on here. Oh, okay. But anyway, Anna, yeah. you won 
Congratulations, <laughs> three hundred well, pounds. Well, don't put that up. Well, I'm okay. Never mind. My bad. Sorry. I mean, at least you, if when you think you didn't ever want anything, don't ever say you ever did. You know what I mean? How do you block the someone? Spam on gotcha. The how spam do you block? Gotcha. How do you block somebody on Streamyard? Uh, you click on instead of like scroll over the picture and see where the star is. There should be another button. There's not. There's not. No. There's just a star. That's it. Oh man. Okay. Well, we won't worry about that anyway. Anyways, I blocked him. So I blocked him anyway. So yeah. So um, yeah. So my personal opinion, and there was speculation that, and it's the only reason why I've come up with this possible answer, is because he was hiding in the closet, and he was ashamed that he was gay, and oh. that's why he killed the people. Because he was wow. ashamed of himself. Yeah. So that is that could be uh yeah, I blocked him, Anna. I blocked him. That's why you can't see him anymore. Yeah. So uh yeah, so um but uh sorry, let me just turn that down. Anyways, so that's uh that's a possible motive on why he did this. He was born October eighth in nineteen fifty one. He is now 72 years old, and he was apprehended on January 18th in 2018, so quite recent, but um, he was also a landscaper, which is going to be important when you see this documentary, (laughs) fortunately. Uh, Yeah, he was a landscaper, and you're going to find out. Uh, how his landscaping skills came into uh, <laughs> into into all his crimes. Oh so, man! <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I'm la- I'm sitting here laughing, and it's not funny, obviously. No, no, but, but I get what you're doing. Mm, I get it. Yeah. So anyhow, so let's start this. Uh, is there anything you want to talk about before we uh, before we get started? No, I'm uh, ready to begin. I want to get this guy going. Okay, here we go, folks. You had people who had full lives, social lives, support networks, families, hobbies. There was no logic to why they would suddenly disappear. There were an awful lot of other occurrences of missing men, guys who just wanted to disappear. Do we have a serial killer? We we just simply did not know at that point in time what we were dealing with. That guy looked familiar. His methods for disposing victims show that he's somebody who's very calculating and rational. The smell of decomposition was so bad. Did you see that guy? Did you, the guy... The guy oh, sorry, the I, no, I was muted. Yeah, no, I yeah. said a little. Yeah, he looks familiar. Yeah, he's the from? same guy that was on the case for uh, the Barbie and Ken killers. Oh, you're right. Okay, I remember yeah. him now. This guy, this guy is, this guy is well, quite well known in this city, uh, because Ooh. he 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 um, he does a lot of these cases. Oh man, we got to well, get pretty confident that there's something to. in those. Planters. I'm actually thinking about getting in touch with him. Using objects that. He has access to to hide the remains of his victims. 
And this was a man who played Santa in a shopping mall. You wouldn't think for a second that he was a serial killer, and that's, that's a scary thing. In Toronto's gay village, an investigation is launched after three men are reported missing. It would take six years to discover the truth around their disappearance. I'm a 30-year member of the Toronto Police Service. I've worked in homicide, uh, in our homicide squad since 2005. And in late 2012, I became involved in an investigation uh, run out of one of our divisions, referred to as Project Houston, to try and figure out what's happened to these three missing men. Now, Scandinavarantnam went missing in late 2010. For a long time, uh, the Church and Wellesley community has been a centre in the city for the queer community. And deeply meaningful uh, in terms of being a, a place to gather, to socialise, to celebrate, to find support. I think when people talk about the church uh, neighbourhood, they think of it as a, overall a safe neighbourhood. It's known for being a very open and tolerant space. Um, it's the site of the gay pride parades. It's a space that draws um, LGBTQ folks from all over the country and other countries who attend this um, festival. got three missing men between 2010 and 2012, and it's a serious enough situation to carry on with that project to try and figure out what's happened to these three missing men. And at that point in time, we simply did not know what had happened to them. The police authorities in Switzerland were contacted by what they classified at that time as an informant. The informant told them he was part of a online cannibal fetish community. And he had been chatting with a user on the website who was identified at the time as John Jacob. And John Jacob told this informant that he had killed and eaten a brown-skinned male from Toronto's gay village. So the informant went online himself to see if there were any murder victims or missing men from Toronto's gay village, and he happened to find the press release about Scandinavaratnam. So he presumed it was Scandinavaratnam that John Jacob was talking about. So he contacted the authorities in Switzerland and it sounds like a bit of an unbelievable story, but the last time he had given them similar information, it was about a cannibal in Slovakia. 
And based on his information, the police in Slovakia ended up uh, finding a cannibal serial killer and ended up killing him actually during a shootout and finding multiple victims around his property. So this informant's credibility was, was quite high. So the information was taken quite seriously. It was passed on to the investigators who were investigating the Scandinavratnam occurrence. And now that you have a witness who is telling you he's been privy to an online confession by someone claiming to have murdered somebody, now it becomes a murder investigation as opposed to a missing persons investigation. Project Houston would not find the missing man, but it unearthed a username on the cannibal fetish website who was based in Toronto, Silver Fox. Perhaps he might know something about the missing men. In November of 2013, 51 Division actually identified who Silver Fox was and interviewed Bruce MacArthur at the time, who was Silver Fox. He wasn't able to offer any information at that time to help with the missing persons investigations. Uh, he, was, he was strictly a witness at the time of the interview. Having concluded MacArthur knew nothing about the missing men, he was free to go. The mystery remained just that, a mystery. Were they dead or alive? No one knew. Three years later, men start going missing from church in Wellesley again. Sarush Mahmoudi, a 50-year-old professional painter, last seen alive by his home in Scarborough, Toronto. Sarush Mahmoudi, a South Asian male, lived in a suburb of Toronto, married in the closet. Of course, the thought of a serial killer was high in the investigators' minds. Do we have a serial killer? We just simply... Now, not that you need to know this, but I'm going to stop this for a minute. You see that, uh, you see that uh, bar there? It's called the Black Eagle? Yeah. I've been to that bar. Oh, and the really? only reason why I've been to that bar is because I had a very good friend that... Um, uh, he, he was, he was, uh, his brother was gay and mm. he spent a lot of time down in downtown, uh, church in Wellesley area. And he had a party there. Uh, he was diagnosed with AIDS several years ago. And so he had been doing everything. The doctors have been told him, uh, telling him to do the medications, exercise, eating properly, everything. He was doing it right down down to a T. And the reason yeah. he was having the party was because he went in for blood work to find on the progress mm. of his AIDS. They couldn't find it in the system. That's great. So he had a party. And that's the only reason why I was at that bar. Just some useless information. Hey, no. Hey. <laughs> we did not know at that point in time what we were dealing with. There were Welcome to Crime Documentaries Peanut Gallery with Brian John from, village, from around the village, <laughs> guys who just wanted to disappear. I, I often tell the story about uh, a, a missing man from the village from 2010 who disappeared off the face of the earth, uh, very similarly to the, these the three victims that we identified. See the white smoke? And the he reappeared in 2014. That's the bar that I was telling you and, about right uh, now. he was interviewed and he said, yeah, I just wanted to get away. I wanted to, uh, to disappear for a while. 
and he moved to the other end of the city and didn't tell anybody, he left his belongings behind. So it wasn't unusual to see occurrences like that with, with alternate explanations. Salim Essen, a lot like Scanan Avaratnam, a resident of the gay village, didn't have a permanent address, uh, wasn't reported missing for about two weeks after he disappeared. These are also people who do not receive the same kinds of attention from the media or from police when they go missing. And you don't have to look very far in Canada. If you look on the West Coast to the story of the Highway of Tears, you see that there are generations of missing and murdered Indigenous people who's, you know, have vanished without, you know, much media attention or, you know, police resources to, to find them. And serial killers are very aware of these things. They know that certain people, they can get away with it with certain people easier than others. His disappearance really got on the radar, and he had a group of people who were really advocating for his disappearance to receive uh, high priority in the investigation. Some of the men were known to go to bars or clubs in the village, and uh, they had people that they knew there. And when they went missing for a period of time, uh, it was noticed that they were not there. Andrew Kinsman probably had the most prominent stature in terms of the most social connections, did a lot of volunteer work with uh, queer organizations, and so his disappearance uh, compared to others, uh, really got on the radar, and he had a group of people who were really advocating for his disappearance to receive uh, high priority in the investigation. So let's gather all of the surveillance video from the neighborhood surrounding this address. So we had these collection of video evidence, and it was in August of 2017, where the investigators were able to finally sit down and start going through all of this video. I, I remember the conversation and it was like, we really didn't know what we were looking for, right? Let's just watch the video and see if anything jumps out at us. So one thing that jumped out was a red Dodge Caravan that circled the block twice right around the time when Andrew Kinsman went missing, which was at about 2.30 in, in the afternoon, June 26. So they started focusing on that red Dodge Caravan. They were able to find it on a camera a couple of blocks away from Andrew Kinsman's house. And it was a good enough image of the Dodge Caravan. We were able to go to the Ministry of Transportation and say, can you give us a printout of all the 2004 to 2006 Red Dodge caravans in the city of Toronto? They provide us a list. There's over 6,000 of these Red Dodge caravans. But we also knew on Andrew Kinsman's calendar, he had a appointment noted, Bruce. 
So out of those over 6,000 Red Dodge caravans, how many of them were registered to somebody named Bruce? There were five, one of them being Bruce MacArthur. As soon as that name popped up, one of the investigators said, Bruce MacArthur, we interviewed him in 2013. Let's look at Bruce MacArthur. Bruce MacArthur comes from a generation where sexuality, homosexuality, um, wasn't as open. We know that MacArthur came from a, uh, a religious household. His father was Presbyterian, his mother was Catholic, and that there was some, some bullying of him by his father. At least what MacArthur alleges is that his father was harder on him because he sensed his son's lack of masculinity. He grew up in a world that was very intolerant and that was not accepting of people who uh, were not straight. This was something that he may have been struggling with for who knows how long. Um, this could have been something, he could have been having desires to, to be with other boys and men since his adolescence or teenage years. And this was something that he couldn't be open about. He, he lived in a family that was very religious. He lived in a society that would not endorse this kind of behavior. So he lived in a world where, in a sense, he had to hide his true self from not only his family, but the rest of the world. And this can be a very traumatic experience for a young person uh, to grow up in a world where you feel like you constantly have to have a mask. MacArthur was married for 25 years. This isn't uncommon. And he told his wife, he came out to his wife and left her and had this sort of second birth, this rebirth uh, into the gay world, started socializing in the gay bars, meeting other gay men. And Toronto is a very vibrant um, gay scene, diverse. I imagine that he found that there were all types of gay men. He immerses himself into the gay village. It's a neighborhood that has a long-standing history for being this space that is very tolerant towards LGBTQ folks. It has a very active nightlife. There are bars, there are you know sex clubs, there's a lot of activity. And I feel like somebody like Bruce MacArthur, after living repressed for so long, comes to this and he feels like a kid in a candy store. Like this is an experience that he has not been able to have for so long and now he's finally able to have it. He starts meeting other gay men, tall, short, um, you know, out of towners, foreigners, masculine and feminine. And that's the, that's the key point there, I think, is that how can these men in MacArthur's mind be openly, outwardly effeminate when he wasn't allowed to as a child? After Bruce MacArthur has bottled his identity up for 30 years and comes out and embraces his sexuality, I think he's at this point somebody who's very eager to get caught up with this life that he's been repressing for so long. He throws himself wholeheartedly into this lifestyle and, and tries to really catch up on time that he's missed. All the while, I think he still has this life of of socialization. We know that in 2001, MacArthur was brought to the attention of the police for having assaulted a male prostitute in a bar. He claims that it was a result of him being off his medication for epilepsy. And he assaults him pretty badly. There's a police report. Okay. 
I think this, this shows that he's beginning to experiment with different kinds of domination and that he's enjoying the sense of power that he has over people. At this stage, it can still be purely sexual. He, he also may have felt rejected in that moment and felt angered by the fact that he was finally trying to live his true life, his true self, and embrace this, and then somebody told him no. It had been Bruce MacArthur's first brush with the law. A psychological assessment concluded that the risk for further violence from him was very minimal. He is sentenced to two years probation. As part of his probation arrangement, MacArthur is ordered to stay out of the, the gay area of Toronto. Now, this would have been, in my opinion, the straw that broke the camel's back. This was the stress. He's finally come out of the closet. He's leading this life that he enjoys leading, and now he's barred. As the years passed and men were going missing, MacArthur's life in Toronto became immersed in the church. He was religious. Bruce MacArthur was somebody who, at least on the surface, was participating in church life and appeared to be very religious. And a lot of times when we think about serial killers, we assume that they resemble the kinds of characters we see in movies, like Hannibal Lecter from Silence of the Lambs, that they just embody evil in everything they do and that they couldn't possibly be involved in something like a church. But there are many serial killers over time who, you know, have been a part of churches and who have been a part of other kinds of social activities that we would never assume are the things that serial killers do. Dennis Rader, for example, also known as the BTK killer in Wichita, Kansas, was a longtime member of his church and was, by most accounts, somebody who was a respected member of his society. Between 2010 and 2016, nobody suspected that Bruce MacArthur was connected to the stories emerging of missing men. Looking at a photograph of Bruce MacArthur or even sitting down and talking to him face to face, I think anybody would be absolutely shocked to find out what exactly he had done. You wouldn't think for one second that this guy was capable of doing what he did, right? He comes across as a very soft-spoken, very gentle, older man. People said they, they never would have suspected him to be found to be the killer. And this was a man who played Santa in a shopping mall. You wouldn't think for a second that he was a serial killer, and that's, that's a scary thing. There's also an incident in North Toronto where Mr. MacArthur is arrested for choking a male in the back of his van. And he was interviewed by the police, and he just sort of denied what happened, and they just believed his word. And that was that. That was the end of that 2016 investigation. So there were just a litany of examples where you could have caught MacArthur. Detectives felt that they lacked the evidence to arrest him in relation to the missing men. But by 2016, Bruce MacArthur had become a suspect. The 2001 occurrence comes up. In the meantime, since the 2013 interview, there's also an incident in 2016. So that's a red flag that goes up as well. So the investigation focuses at that point in time on, on Bruce MacArthur.
in the days following the public announcement of Project Prism, he gets rid of the red Dodge Caravan, and we are lucky enough to recover that from a wrecking yard, and it's forensically examined. And in the back of the van, there is blood, which is found and eventually identified as belonging to Andrew Kinsman. So once we have that information in November 2017, now it becomes evidence of a murder and evidence obviously linking MacArthur to that murder. We have as much surveillance as we can muster, keeping an eye on him, identifying his associates. He lived in a high-rise apartment building, and he had a roommate, and surveillance was able to identify an opportunity in the middle of the night where we'd be able to go in to his apartment. down the path of preparing a, a wiretap investigation because we thought if he is responsible for this, if these are murders, there's no way he's doing this by himself. But once we had the blood, uh, we had enough evidence where we could go to a judge and get a, a warrant to allow us to surreptitiously enter his apartment and clone his computer. You can imagine the logistics of obtaining that judicial authorization to do it, having the surveillance teams watching him around the clock, nailing down his roommate's schedule and nailing down his schedule, having locksmiths ready to go at a moment's notice, having uh, tech officers ready to go at a moment's notice and investigators and also forensic investigators to take photographs as, as we're executing the warrant. So it's an awful lot of work to prepare for that and then jump at the opportunity when you have it. And, and I'm thinking the date was December the 7th of 2017, where we were able to go into his apartment, clone 45% of his computer before our surveillance team notifies us he's actually headed back. So we have to get out of there and we were lucky enough to be able to get that 45% of his computer. In that 45%, we have over a hundred thousand images, thumbnails from websites, images in emails, personal photographs, and we have over a million artifacts. Computer, get you every time. Email sent that we have time. to manually go through to try and find something. And it was five weeks worth of work when we found the first photograph. He created a file for each of his victims. He had wow. photographs in there of them when they were alive. He had taken photographs of them on camping trips with a couple of, uh, of the victims, photographs of them in previous uh, visits and, re and relationship type photographs. But he also had photographs in there, um, uh, posed post-mortem photographs in there. One of the victims who survived being choked unconscious by MacArthur 
he's given some interviews and he didn't even realize it had happened until we found photographs of him on MacArthur's computer, obviously unconscious in the photographs in a state of undress. We had photographs which we had recovered from MacArthur's computer of what turned out to be Kumar Kanagratnam. And we had no idea who he was. And so we had to release that to the media. With MacArthur that, still free, I the case of Kumar Kanagratnam displayed MacArthur's ability to pick a victim few would miss. Again, a refugee claimant from uh, Sri Lanka, outstanding immigration warrant for him, never reported as missing. And we can only narrow down the timeline of his murder uh, very loosely. He was a refugee aboard a infamous cargo ship called the Sun Sea, which docked in Vancouver, I believe in 2010, uh, with several hundred refugee claimants on board. Uh, so really sad, vulnerable victims. MacArthur, I think, got very careful after that 2013 interview to target some people who um, he knew probably wouldn't be reported missing. Dean Lissowick, who was never reported missing, was a resident of the shelter system in Toronto. So sometimes what happens is that you have a person who is experimenting with rough sex, is immersing themselves in a world of bondage and domination, and they, you know, enjoy the power that they feel over another person, and it gets to this tipping point where the, the violence in play escalates to a point where they feel swept up in the moment, and the violence takes over, and it becomes fatal. And in the aftermath, they, they relive those moments and they realize how much they enjoyed uh, killing. Once he decided he was going to kill that particular victim, uh, he would create the, those folders and uh, definitely speaks to premeditation. And it also puts us in a position where we're very comfortable to say that there were no other victims between 2010 and 2018. So on January the 18th, it was a uh, Thursday morning, and I had said, he is not allowed to go behind a closed door with another man. So let's just keep following him. And unless he does that, we're gonna leave him alone till Saturday morning. Well, Murphy's Law, of course, Thursday morning, he picks up a male who we had seen him pick up before, and he takes him back to his apartment at about 10 o'clock in the morning. The surveillance team needed to act quickly. The investigator calls me and says, we're gonna go and arrest him. Uh, yes, go and arrest him. And so within 18 minutes, I believe, of them seeing him go into the building, uh, they're at his door. They knocked on the door and Mr. MacArthur came to the door and he was placed under arrest uh, right there and then for two counts of murder. The ninth victim, who has never been publicly identified, I'll call him John, uh, was found tied to MacArthur's bed. 
and he had had a hood placed over his head by MacArthur, and he had managed to wiggle the hood off of his head. And sure enough, there was a file folder on MacArthur's computer uh, with the name of that ninth victim on it. So there's no doubt in my mind whether it had been that day or a subsequent day that John would have been victim number nine. With eight men gone and a ninth rescued, detectives arrested MacArthur. If he had killed these men, where were their bodies? Yeah, it gets a little bit nasty after MacArthur this. had been arrested just minutes before he intended to kill his ninth victim. Investigators learned from his computer the key moments on his road to becoming a serial killer. He stumbles across this website, Recon, which is a fetish website. Uh, it's known for bondage, discipline, sadomasochism, BDSM, and perhaps starts to devise a plan for dealing with these effeminate, passive men. So he assumes a more dominant role, the dom, if you will, and seeks out these men who are the subs, the subordinates. He sought out a certain type of victim. Immigrants, individuals who may not have had their whole family uh, with them in Toronto, uh, this fits the profile of the type of serial killer who goes for a victim that will not go noticed if they go missing. And the fact that it took so much work to make people accept and understand that the racial and sexuality dimension of this case was part of why MacArthur was able to continue what he was doing for so long. And the fact that the police were reflexively defensive, that even the media didn't really pay attention to this angle, that even some members of the community did not fully emphasize or think about race when it came to these victims, uh, that was deeply upsetting to me. Race plays a, a big role in this case. It plays a role in the sense that Bruce MacArthur, as an older white guy, was just good old boy from Canada, is not somebody who, on the surface, is somebody who would elicit a lot of attention from police. He's not somebody who is under the same kinds of surveillance that, let's say, uh, a black man or a brown man who is Muslim is under when they come into Canada. In a lot of ways, Bruce MacArthur's race helped him evade the authorities for so long. It also plays a role insofar as that some of his victims were also brown men who were living in communities that were not as, as open and, and tolerant of, of the gay lifestyle. We've seen it in cases of serial killers in the United States who've also preyed on vulnerable members of the community. And so, to me, it does seem that it is an invitation to individuals who are wanting to do such horrific things because they know they can get away with it for a long time. Uh, and I think the interactions MacArthur had with police over many years with many different officers, uh, despite many different entry points that should have raised a red flag, is illustrative of that. By January 2018, MacArthur was in custody Evidence to prove he was a serial killer was building, but there were still no bodies. Families needed closure. MacArthur was a landscaper, accustomed to digging holes in the ground, 
and cultivating planters. Detectives searched the properties where they know he has lived. We were able to obtain our search warrants for the properties in the ensuing 48 hours. The one property where ultimately all the victims were found was on Mallory Crescent here in Toronto and the ravine behind Mallory Crescent. And this was a location where MacArthur stored his landscaping equipment. And it was an older couple who actually owned the house, but they had vacation property in Northern Ontario. So he really had open access to the property during summer months. And you can imagine their shock and their surprise when we show up and basically tell them, you have to get out of your house. Uh, we don't know where we're going to be able to give it back to you. But it was a, a really, really cold winter here in Toronto. So the ground was frozen solid and the canine units were first used on the property of Mallory Crescent. They were searching the backyard and one of the dogs gave us an indication on a planter that was at the back of Mallory Crescent. But we didn't know if he was indicating the ground underneath the planter or the planter itself. And the planter was frozen solid. So we ended up seizing the planter and we seized, I believe on the first day, three planters. And we brought them to our property bureau because they had to thaw out so we could search them. So once they were at the property he bureau- He was growing mad weed. They started to thaw out and then <laughs> the smell of decomposition coming from them was so bad that we were pretty confident that there was something in those planters. So we ended up taking them to the morgue and they sat in the loading bay at the morgue for a couple of days so they could thaw out. And then the first thing the pathologist was able to do was x-ray one of the planters once it had thawed out sufficiently. So the x-ray was still very blurry, but you can make out because it was still essentially a block of ice, but you could still make out that there was what appeared to be a rib cage in that planter. The power, the thrill of dominating them up to the point of killing them is a rush and they continue having that sense of power by treating the the remains the the corpses of their victims like dolls they they, they have this sense of complete and utter domination over them and they enjoy the sense of humiliation and shame that they can you know put these put these poor people through so they had to hoist this planter using a crane up onto an examination table and then use power saws to cut away the sides of the planters. And the first planter that they cut open, there were some human remains found in that planter. And subsequently in the other planters that we recovered from Mallory Crescent uh, were the bulk of seven of the eight. That's victims. what we call fertilizer. Okay. Bruce MacArthur's methods I'm for killing, by yeah. the accounts I've read, suggest that he was somebody who enjoyed having control. His methods for disposing victims show that he's somebody who's very calculating and rational. He's using objects that he has access to, which are planters, to hide the remains of his victims. And this is also something that allows him to revisit 
these places where you know he feels a connection to the remains of these victims that he's killed. The actual identification of the remains in the planters needs to be based on dental records, fingerprints, or DNA. So Andrew Kinsman was in one of the planters, and Andrew had had titanium knee replacements. So when we found a set of titanium knee replacements in the remains, we were pretty confident that that was Andrew Kinsman. But he was actually still preserved enough that we were able to identify his fingerprints on the remains. So Andrew was identified by fingerprints. Kumar Kanagratnam was identified by fingerprints. Dean Lissowick, who was never reported missing, was identified from the photographs that uh, found on MacArthur's computer, and then ultimately DNA from the remains. The majority of them were, were identified through uh, either DNA or dental records at the end of the day. So it was a different process for each of the victims. MacArthur discards of his victims' bodies in, in the same place that he's working, in these gardens, in these pots. Now, one could perhaps assume that this is a, a disregard for his victims. MacArthur might have wanted them close to him. These would have been his totems, his trophies, his talisman around him while he's working. Bruce MacArthur kept lots of mementos from his victims, including their hair. And this is another common practice amongst killers. They enjoy having uh, small items that remind them of their victims. These are things that serial killers return to um, in the interim between kills because it gives them a, a small dose of the rush that they felt when they killed. Uh, but ultimately, over time, the, the gratification they get from these items begins to taper off and they begin to seek out a new victim because these items can't ever live up to the real thing, to the act of killing another person. Every time we identified another victim, we laid another murder charge. And every time we did that, we had to bring MacArthur back to court, advise him of the new charge, and put him before the courts again and he never uh, said anything during any of those interactions. So one thing we know about serial killers is that they learn, they develop better strategies and techniques over time because they make mistakes and they begin to develop a routine, a ritual uh, that they use to not only perfect the the, the way they kill people, but also to conceal evidence of the killing itself. And that so always gets Bruce them. MacArthur may have yeah. been somebody who began, you know, sort of getting swept up in the moment and killing his first victim, and then in the aftermath realizing he liked it. Uh, but over time, you know, because this is a, a, a career of killing that spans quite a bit of time, he's somebody who is you know, perfecting his technique and is learning from past mistakes and is becoming very organized and careful in his thought process. And that, that includes selecting victims, that includes 
how to dispose of their remains so that he doesn't get caught. He's somebody who's, you know, continuously refining his strategies and getting better at it over time. For Detective Hank Itzinger, a case like no other, a serial killer who terrorized a community. I've never dealt with anyone like Bruce MacArthur to see what it is he did, the absolute terror he brought down upon the city. And, and it touches the gay village and the gay population of Toronto, but it touches everybody else in Toronto as well. Wow. He'll still be 91. He will never get out. It's a horrific yeah. tragedy, what happened. It makes me feel deeply pained that these men lost their lives and that they were all, had such a, they had friends, they had family members who loved them. They were navigating the, the issues in their lives the best they could and that their lives were cut short in such a, a brutal and meaningless manner um, is, is horrifying um, and deeply tragic. I tell you what, man, that's sad. Yeah, and uh, they didn't say it in here, but he talked about three planters. I believe, if memory serves me correct, there ended up being ten. Oh, my gosh. Uh, that he put these bodies in, which obviously he had to cut them up, right? Um, there's yeah. even reports, too, that some of the bodies, um, and I don't know how true this is, but there was a report that, you know the uh, when you throw the tree into a chipper? Yeah. He was doing that with some of the bodies as well, with some of the parts. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, this guy was totally off his rocker. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's interesting. We discussed this earlier. And, but why did he start at such a late age? That's yeah. like, that's crazy. Like, it's crazy, yeah. but, and again, like but, I said earlier, it's suspected that he's probably killed a lot more people that, you know. Not only that, he's probably, like, suppressed his desire, too, maybe. Yeah. For so long. Maybe. You maybe. No, because some, some people do that. They'll do it with animals, and then they'll suppress it, and then after a while, all of a sudden, they'll move to humans. It's really weird. Like, that's why when you see kids who, like, who literally, like, abuse animals, the first sign of, like, psychology is, like, oh, watch out. That could be a psychotic child, you know. They're killing animals and doing yeah. things. So and there's got to be something that led up to all that, you know, like, to get him I, into that. I later. still think, and I, and I know they talked about how he came out and he was very open about being gay. I still think there was some somehow some way – in his mind that there was shame there. Oh, definitely. There was shame of him being gay, especially with his father being so religious 
and, and not I accepting bet. that. So, yeah. and I bet that was his way of taking it out on his victims was like for his abuse of what his father would have done to him. It's probably something sick along those lines, to be honest. And like I said, a couple of weeks ago, when we were talking about this story, I met somebody that a gym that I used to go to that was a uh, prison guard at that gym. And apparently like the, he was saying that this guy is, he's like very, very, very intelligent, very yeah. intelligent. And, but you know what you said, it you said it during that video, computers always get you. They always get you in the end. Always. Now, what I'm curious about was that just when he was talking to that guy in what was it, Switzerland? Was it Switzerland? I think um, the uh, informant in the the informant, and he told oh, the informant that yeah. he and he ate somebody. He what? He killed someone. He killed someone and ate that person. Ate that person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I'm wondering. I'm wondering how uh, if that's was obviously just just him showing off. Yeah. You know, not like more of an ego thing. And he yeah. didn't necessarily do that, but um, yeah, that's how they caught the uh, PTK killer. Um, you know, it, it, stay away from the computer, folks. Yeah, right. <laughs> stay away from the computer. Don't put any don't shit on the computer. Yeah, yeah, don't put any stuff on the computer, like yeah. files, pictures. Yeah. Like, geez. Like, it always fascinates me that. You know, because obviously these people are killing these people that we've obviously been showing for the last 10 weeks. But what always surprises me is they they keep something from them. Yeah. And if you don't want to get caught, the last thing you'd want to do is freaking keep something. messed up. Yeah, That's why just, I'm telling you. You never okay, two things you never want to do. You never want to have a witness and you never want to have a body, and you never want to have anything about that body near you. Not yeah. even your own clothes, because if you're using a gun, the gunpowder gets on your clothes, on your hands. They can track that. You got to be smart. Like, you yeah. know, these people are stupid, in my opinion. So his roommate that he had never suspected anything? That's what I'm saying. Like, I mean, he's smart in that aspect, getting by that. But, like, how dumb are you to, like, keep their items? You know what I mean? And then on top of that, was he actually killing him in his apartment or was he killing him somewhere else? Yeah, it's true. So, but unfortunately, I've had the experience of smelling um, a dead body. I've yeah, had that experience. Good. It's yeah, not it's nice. Not no. um, if he had, and something that they never said either, that they found the planters, but the planters were in the garage. They never talked about that. So mm. the people that lived there, did they not smell it? Yeah. <laughs> like they're probably like, ah, that was just uh that was just him. He's like it's a you know? it's a very distinct smell. Like yeah, when you when you when you know, like if you see a dead animal on the road and you walk past yeah. and it's only been dead for a short period, you can smell it. And it oh, smells yeah. bad. Oh, it smells uh, bad. Especially in the summertime. Yeah. And like, they never talked about it in this, but yes, they found planters outside, but there were actually planters in the garage, too, that um, he stored in the garage. Wow. And they never talked about that. But I wonder why they didn't mention that. I'm kind of curious on why they didn't mention that. But 
uh, yeah, how these people, how these people didn't know is, is beyond me. And even if they were like, obviously the bodies have been there for a while. So you have the winter, you have the summer, you would still smell it if the planters were around the house. Yeah. So anyways, I don't know. You're right. But, um, Bruce MacArthur. Yeah. Yep. Bruce He's a crazy one. Yeah. You know what that means, <laughs> He's right? He's a crazy one. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Bruce MacArthur, case closed. You don't want to say goodbye to everyone and stuff like that? Yeah. You don't want know. to say goodbye to people or thank you for oh, coming. Oh, man. Room? Oh, yeah. You're right. I will. Yeah. Right. Sorry, guys. I'm sorry. I got too excited. I wanted to push that button so bad. <laughs> so bad. Go ahead. I apologize. I, I want to thank everybody that came in the room and watched, uh, watched this episode of Bruce MacArthur, uh, the crazy one, as I say every week. And uh, I got to think of something better. I do. The crazy ones just. Yeah. The crazy ones, I... you're lying. <laughs> yeah but you gotta think of something better but yeah i want to thank everybody that came in the room and watched and uh, we'll be back next week i haven't decided what we're gonna do there's a few that i'm looking at right now that uh we could possibly do and i want to say thank you for the people that are listening uh through the podcast through spotify what yeah. are all the ones iheart amazon Am apple amazon, pandora yeah i want to thank Google. everybody that's listening to yeah. the listening through there and thank you for downloading and listening to us uh babylon at the beginning at the end of the show and <laughs> so but uh yeah thank you so much aj no thank everyone for tuning in i want to thank all the people listening on the podcast uh, on the rss page uh we've gained a lot of followers in the past couple of days and we really appreciate it so head over to your favorite podcast listening platform Check out Crime Documentaries. You'll find us with that logo up top. That's right above Brian's head. And uh, we'll see you over there for every episode on the go. Um, and also Thank check you. us out Sunday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Facebook Live on Post Network Central. And if you don't know what Post Network Central is, then it's very sad. And you need to head over to Post <laughs> Network Central now to check out some amazing podcasts. It's very sad. It is very, very sad. sad. But you yes. got to go over to you got to go over to to uh, talking with the source as well. Well, you need to go over to talking with the source as well, and come check out the paranormal podcast that I have. And if you like paranormal, it'd be the best for you. So come check it out. But other than that, can I say it? Yes, go for it. All right, uh, George MacArthur. Am I right? Bruce MacArthur. I'm sorry, Bruce MacArthur. You have been sentenced guilty. Case closed.